Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Carrie murdered a child. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching The Outsider. I am Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week on this show, we like to break down the latest episode of the HBO miniseries The Outsider. This week we are talking about season one, episode five, The Tear Drinker, written by Richard Price and directed by um, Igor Martinovich. And uh, we will not be spoiling anything beyond... This episode of The Outsider, episode five. Um, we will, however, be talking about some book stuff this week because I've gotten some emails and responses from people with some book information. None of it I would consider spoilery, but just to let you know, we'll give you ample warning when we sort of dive into that. But there is some, some book responses that we got. Um, we actually might, might get into some of that right away. Richard, are you, are you ready? ready yeah. For some book differences. Let's do okay. it. Let's do it. Um, I got a beyond email. Someone reached out to me via other channels, a, a listener named Charlotte to tell me some differences between uh, the book and the series. Um, and the main one, the main, the main whole, holy crap uh, takeaway that I had is that in the book, um, Ralph does not have a dead son, Derek. So oh, interesting. His son is not dead in the book. So I don't know if they like, I mean, it's so delicious to watch Ben Mendelsohn be so broody. So I don't know if like, that's a reason why, uh, delicious maybe is the wrong word. Um, that makes me sound like a tear drinker. Um, but <laughs> <Uh-oh>. you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it was me all along. Um, no, but like, uh, I love this edition because I love, especially in this episode, we see how tightly connected, um, Jeannie and Ralph's grief over their son is to this current case. Um, so I love this choice. What do you, what do you make of this, this idea that they had to give Ralph and Jeannie a, a dead son? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it just adds more thematic 
heft to it. And I think this episode, uh, which is kind of like the saddest episode we've had thus far, uh, in some ways, um, I think it makes a good case for, for that narrative change for sure. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, the sort of cop with a tragedy in there, but you know, like, but, but it, but when done right, and this is, you know, written by Richard Price, acted by Ben Mendelsohn and Mayor Winningham, um, it, it works really well. Yeah. And I really like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to it in a bit, but the, like the flashback we had to them sort of fresh off their grief mm-hmm. where she's like catatonic and he's drinking. Like, I, I feel like that's a story we've seen, not, not to downplay it. It is, it is an important story, but like that's a story we've seen a lot. So I like that it's like, what do you do with that grief? This many, you know, this, I don't, I can't remember how long it's been since Derek died, but like maybe a year, year later, you know, this, this much time has passed. What does grief look like now when it's not so fresh, but it's something that you live with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's interesting and, and makes Ralph, um, you know, if, as we learned in this episode, this creature is not just interested in like the, the, the pain point of the murder and, and the framing of an individual, but also the ripples of grief, uh, if it feeds off grief, then Ralph is like a, you know, a perfect meal, uh, for this creature and, and, and Jeannie as well. Um, all right. And then we got this email from, uh, Amanda who has a, a watching, a, like a further watching recommendation. And she writes, um, I've had Who Killed Little Gregory and my Netflix queue for ages and finally watched it. It's a five part French docuseries about a child murder in provincial France in the early eighties, which I knew nothing about going in. Uh, what a story. And then here she switches into some French sans le supernaturel. Uh, it reminded me so much of the outsider's themes of the ripples effects of a crime and unhinged media, the all consuming rage under the surface of people and society and the way grief and anger destroy so much in his path. It actually quite is, e- is quite easily to believe that King's grief eater, uh, is stalking this village stirring the pot and some elements of it are simply as sinister and creepy as the pulpy as the most pulpy thriller. So if you haven't yet had your fill of utterly unbearable grief and the like, it is the Balfay companion piece. So that's from Amanda. Some recommendation on Netflix, a French docuseries. Or you could watch Cheer, you know, <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> to each their own. Yeah. Uh, Richard's, Richard's uh, Twitter timeline has been full of some cheer admiration. So uh, you might want to, might want to take a look. Um, all right. So, and then this email comes from um, Maureen. And Maureen wrote a very lengthy email that I um, unfortunately cannot get to all of. Um, but Maureen highlights some like book show differences. Um, and so she says, uh, all my feedback is from the point of view of someone who's read the book and I'm not intending to do any spoiling, but I'm assuming you've watched ahead since you mentioned having access to six or more episodes. So we will make sure that nothing we read right now does any spoiling for Maureen. Um, the show is very impressive in how it is addressing both reader and non-reader to entertain. And your podcast is really adding to the experience. Thanks, Maureen. Um, Getting the feeling that they learned something from Game of Thrones fan feedback. Maybe. Alright. Uh, so she says, Holly Gibney. Holly Gibney has made massive leaps in maturing and social skills through the Mr. Mercedes book. So readers would have watched her progress socially. Um, 
Stephen King did not release any information that Holly Gibney was a character at all in The Outsider prior to release. So it was a very pleasant surprise because you're reading the book and like, I'm going to summarize here, but basically you're reading the book. You think Terry Maitland is the main character. He dies. And then all of a sudden Holly Gibney shows up this character that King fans are like quite familiar with. And they're like, Oh my God, it's a Holly Gibney story. What the heck? Uh, so that's a, you know, that's obviously something the the show couldn't pull off, but I think that is an interesting thing that King decided to do, um, with the book. Um, yeah, it's like realizing that, um, that James McAvoy movie split is actually yeah. <laughs> an unbreakable sequel. You're like, Oh, this is all tied together. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, she says we're doing a great job of asking the right questions as far as seeing where the story is going. Thank you, Maureen. Um, and then she says something about Jeannie. This is a great Jeannie episode, so I think it's really good to read this thing that Maureen says about Jeannie in the books. Jeannie, Jeannie Anderson is one of those quiet characters in the book that makes all the difference, just like people uh, like her are in all of our communities. And Mary Winningham is nailing the part. And then this is the last uh, point that I think is really interesting. Maureen says, another book issue to consider is there's not a therapist in the book. Uh, Ralph, uh, as we've seen him go to a couple therapy sessions, Um so much of the Stephen King narration is sharing through character POV. Get, I'm guessing that the therapist is Price's plan to let us know what Ralph is thinking rather than the normal, like a normal therapist trope. So it's a way to get inside Ralph's head, uh, rather than like us watching the character go through therapy. It's a way to crack into his head. So, um, I think that's an astute observation that Maureen makes there. Uh, the other thing is I got confirmation that Holly's, um, little uh boyfriend crush whatever um andy is not in the books and i i'm so worried about andy i I can't even tell you like i I was like i so i hadn't watched ahead uh in, in when we recorded previous episodes when i watched this episode five and it ends like andy finds a paper and like whatever in the hotel room and i had to watch the next episode because i was like i need to know if, if andy's gonna die i need to know <laughs> i need to know now um and uh yeah so i was just like very nervous uh for andy generally uh on this show so protect him at all cost um andy and i care a lot about um the andy and holly dynamic so there we go uh yeah so do you have any thoughts about any of those those changes the addition like what does the addition of andy do or the addition of a therapist figure or any or any of those um decisions well i think it's you know we talk, i think we talked about this last week where like you know um in, in adapting, you have to, you have to do 10 hours of television, like, and, and, you know, he, I think he said something like, you know, you're kind of halfway through the book by episode three or something. Um, yeah. so you kind of need to pad it out. And I think that they found really interesting ways to, um, deepen the texture of the show to really, you know, make this sense of despair and grief, like really palpable. I think again, this episode really kind of drives that home, um, very well. And I like all the little kind of, weird detail and, and kind of asides with characters that aren't, you know, a hundred percent intrinsic to the, the main story, but like they just, I don't know, they, they fill out, they fill out the world, um, in a way that makes it that much more like enveloping. Um, so I, I, I think they're doing a, a smart job. You don't always see that sometimes, uh, those embellishments kind of make no sense and fall flat. Um, but here so far, um, I feel like they're, they're working pretty well. Yeah. One last change that, um, I thought was interesting, uh, that the listener Charlotte told me about is that, um, I believe the book is set in Oklahoma and the show is set in Georgia. I think that's the case. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the Oklahoma setting of the book, uh, brings the setting closer to some, um, like Native American and, 
you know, Latin American cultures uh, in a way that Georgia doesn't. And so the connection to El Cuco and whatever, like, was perhaps a bit like more naturally there in the water in Oklahoma than it would be in Georgia. And so we've got this like New York excursion that's not in the book to sort of connect uh, the dots through this Maria character and the rando, the helpful rando at the jail uh, who over. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So, but in this in this case, we're going back to case number two, which is how I think of uh, the Heath Hofstetter case. Um, and we meet this this guy uh, with a rash on his neck. Uh, similar to Jack's rash uh, back home in Georgia. And so we get this sort of, uh, it, it opens with his death, and then we get this th- three days earlier uh, sort of thing, and we journey through like how he got there. And I think that's an effective, it, we talked about the sort of uh, pancake cold open um, in last week's episode, and this is, I think, a little effective device, because you're like, well, how do we get here? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh how did he wind up dead? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I I can't remember if they do it in episode six, but I anticipate it's something they'll they'll sort of keep doing. It's a it's a it's an interesting little quirk of of the show, I think. Um, but yeah, so we get we get this guy. Um, I guess what I didn't need another a blistery rash to look at. Nope. That's for sure. No, um, multiple times but, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here we are. Uh, and we cut. You know, to make the parallel com- like very drive it home, we cut from this guy dead on the ground, rash on the back of his neck to uh, our angry cop back home, Jack dragging the deer. He is upset to see that his offering of lamp has uh, been rejected. Uh, so it seems like um, El Coco or whatever is as mystified as we were as to why Jack put some lamps in the woods. Uh, any, any thoughts on, on the broken lamp here? Well, but because the, the lamp is now, it's been like tossed away from the main sort of pile of stuff. That's yeah. there, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. a combination of it needs. There needs to be a dead animal, but also these objects. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping we get some concrete explanation for what this is. Um, but it was, you know, the scene beyond that sort of those kind of curious details. It's an interesting scene because we see that the people, because we see also see later with the other character that the people who are kind of made these rent fields to in the thrall of whatever we're Ilkoko mm-hmm. or whatever we're dealing with, um, that they do have still some sort of agency or like autonomy, like, like they can talk back, you know, to this entity and sometimes are able to like follow their own will. Um, and yet are still sort of ultimately devoted to doing the bidding of, of this thing. Um, so it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, I like that they don't, become outright sort of automaton zombie kind of things um you know just single ser- you know solely serving the, the purposes of this creature but like that it's just now a, a part of them they're still them um i don't know i just think it's a it's an interesting kind of nuance yeah because you wouldn't want like to watch a zombie like it's less interesting to watch a zombie go through the whole thing than it is to watch like what we what i really like about this episode and let's sort of follow this like renfield thrall 
aspect all the way through. What I like about this episode is that we get more of the humanity of this uh, Jack Hoskins character in terms of his relationship with the character of Tamika Collins, who's this woman who, you know, this fellow cop who's been shot and has a baby. And like what context clues this episode and the previous episode when she's like, if you don't go to come to my baby, like shower, I'll kill you or whatever, or whatever. Um, is that, you know, if they weren't exactly like they have a close relationship, she says something like, you can tell me anything, you know that. And we like her. So like, if we like her and she likes him, then in theory, there's something about him that is worthy of, of caring about and rooting for. And mm-hmm. so to see his conflict around, like, I don't even want to touch your baby because I'm not in full control of myself. I'm doing all this stuff like buying lamps and dragging deers into the wood and stuff like that. And like, I, I, I'm upset and I, don't have control and I don't want to be, I don't want to hurt the people that I care about. And I think that conflict is very, is so much more interesting than, as you say, either the zombie thing or like, this is just a bad dude getting badder through the influence of a particularly pernicious neck rash, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, as is true in a lot of King work, um, there, you could read a metaphor for addiction into that. You know, mm-hmm. like they're, these people are still themselves and yet this thing has a really a terrible hold on them and they don't always know, um, that they're gonna, um, they're gonna have any sort of sense of self-control. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. This, um, this sequence where Tamika has this dream that there's like a hooded figure in her nursery, by the way, uh, never mind. <laughs> to offer some parenting insight uh i think a character a baby that new usually sleeps in with the parents so it's kind of silly that that baby has a nursery like so far down the house but um anyways she has this dream that there's like this hooded figure taking her baby she goes her baby's missing then she goes outside and her extremely handsome husband is sitting there with her adorable baby on their beautiful porch with like framed in wisteria Mm -hmm. and i was like Tamika, you are living your best life, I have to say. <laughs> like, this is, um, something, a depressing thing about, uh, watching shows like this that are set not in, like, one of the coastal cities is I'm like, look at these beautiful houses that these, like, I know. cops can afford. And, like, uh, they're beautiful. Like, there's this, the scene where Ralph and Jack are sitting in Ralph's backyard and it's just, like, this beautiful expanse of, like, rolling hills and trees and maybe a creek. And I'm just like, Man, living in California really is <laughs> not the right thing to do. I mean, you know, all we need to do is get shot in the leg and live in a town stalked by a grief monster, and we could have the, you know, three-bedroom craftsman small, of our dreams. Small price to pay, I mm-hmm. say. Um Yeah, so basically, like, Jack has seen... I've decided to call the little, like conglomerate of ralph and various other investigators like a heart they're like the hardy boys basically right Mm -hmm. they've like formed their own little crew so he's basically like spying on the hardy boys this seems like something that the the grief monster is like telling him to do which is like get involved right right so he comes to ralph with this sort of like contrite hat in hand act and like so there are ways in which jack is conflicted and loyal that i buy and then there's this thing where he goes to ralph and he's like i just want a chance to help and i don't buy that whatsoever um what what was your read on that that like jack and ralph scene yeah i mean it's interesting like with with jack's kind of motivations um and then later when we see the actual or some semi-corporeal form of the grief monster (laughs) that like there there is a concern there 
there is a, a sense of like, oh, I could get caught or they, they're on to me, you know? So you have to stop it. You have to look, you have to kind of um, monitor them. Um, you know, so, so like I was talking last week about how with the hood and everything that there seems to be some sense of shame or something about this, this entity. Um, and now here we see almost a little fear from it. You know, because it, if, if it was just some all powerful thing, it wouldn't, who, who cares if the police are investigating or getting close, you know, closer and closer to, to, to the truth? Um, it wouldn't matter. But, but I, so I think that's an interesting dynamic. Um, and, uh, you know, cause clearly this, this, this thing needs people like Jack, um, to, to help them. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. You're right that it's like a hunted thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know it's it's trying to warn uh people off uh but yeah you would think that if it could just like con- like what are the rules of this creature i have a lot of questions about that that i think will never be answered but i but but there's one question i do have about this menace and this is a larger question for the episode so we've got the corporeal form in the hood right mm-hmm. who like likes to make night visits to genie's dining room um, we've got its thralls with the boil rash on their necks. And then I just have a question about this, like, vision of Derek at the end of the episode. Is this supposed to be related to, like, the grief monster? Like, what can he do? What are his powers? And, like, is, are, are there too many, uh, men, like, too many kinds of threats? Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what is he orchestrating? What strings is he pulling? Um, do you know what I mean? Like maybe that uncertainty is good because you like have to be on the lookout for various threats, but are there too many of kinds of ways in which they manifest? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I sort of took the, the appearance of Derek at the end to be more of a, of just a dream. Um, but therefore further confusing, the fact of that the, 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 the bogeyman is actually kind of in some form showing up, you know, I think yeah. that like, like, I think that Ralph having a dream about his son because he's just been talking to his wife about having bad dreams, you know, and all this stuff. And, um, I, I, I don't know. I think that was more sort of, um, metaphorical, I guess, than, than mm. actual, but uh, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, the other, the other impact we should mention in the, that we see in this episode is so like, we've already talked about how Terry, the, uh, strip club manager played by Patty Considine, um, is, has been scratched. So is like, is next, right? In theory. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to Genie's drawing in a second, but like, he, he's next in theory. Uh, but like he's also he's like behaving kind of erratically, right? Like right. he nearly got in a fight last week, and then this week we get the shot of him in the strip club, and everything goes into like nightmarish slow mo, which is like very effective to see these like women dancing in like you know creepy slow mo and stuff like that. But um, like, what impact does does you know the scratch have on the people that he's? that the grief monster is like turning himself into. Right. Like was right. Maitland acting weird before right. exactly. all that went down. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I don't know, but that's, that's just, that's something, that's another like sort of impact that they're trying to sort of uh, explore here. But when it comes to the other, the other uh, Renfield, this like guy who seemed to have known Heath, we don't find out a lot about him. We see him cleaning up the house, Heath's house. We see, we find out that he like made the bed, uh, cause we see him like take out the sheets and then later the sheets are on the bed. So like he's made the bed, um, and he's at the grave and like tending the grave. Um, and so, you know, Jack is not all that connected to, um, Terry Maitland directly, but what this seems to imply is that this character who we see die was connected, uh, to Heath is, uh, Holly's exploring that in terms of like, these are, are, are kindnesses, like reluctant, sort of mercies or whatever of like, I'm sorry. And he said, you know, he says what he says to her when she sees this guy at um, the gravesite is like, you know, he fucked him. He fucked me too. Um, and I just think that that's a really interesting, what, as you say, an interesting dynamic to see these guys, these, these thralls like fighting against right. uh, this influence. over and, and, and the way he spoke about it, it sounded like a relationship. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, like this, this entity, like, bitch, you know, fucked us, fucked us over, betrayed us, like, which, yeah, it kind of gives the impression that at one point there was almost this, uh, the opposite sense of like the, the, the you know, I don't know, it, like it was doing something for them or, or something, I don't know. Um, but it, it just, yeah, again, it's, 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 uh, I like the dynamic that, um, these thralls are, are in dialogue with the entity, uh, rather than just rotely following its orders. Yeah. And then we get this um question that Holly has about structures sort of around uh the graveyards, right? We've got this like weird factory uh near Heath and she has this sense that there would be like a structure of some sort near the graveyard where the the grief eater, the tear drinker could just sort of like, ooh, mm, soak up that grief, just wallow in it. Mm, it's delicious. Um, and then they go to Terry's grave and we see that the barn uh is right nearby. I thought that was a that was a pretty cool reveal. Yeah. Uh, you know, that you're just like you're there and you can't see it, and all of a sudden, um, you know, conveniently for all of us, uh, the character of Eunice Sablo is on this trip to the gravesite, so he can be the one to be like, "Oh, hey, it's that barn right there <laughs> yeah. that I that I'm the only character amongst us who has seen it before." Um, that's kind of that's fascinating. Yeah, and um, I, 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 it's interesting that this creature needs some sort of building in which to hide or a residence in a way. You know, again, that further makes it seem. Not human exactly, but, but more, um, vulnerable, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just another little, like, like I like the way that, that, that King has sort of created this thing that, that is definitely powerful and scary and supernatural and et cetera, et cetera, but that has its limits, that has its weaknesses, that has its kind of needs, you know? Um, it makes it, 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 it anthropomorphizes it, you know, and it, it, you know, uh, which I think is scarier. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have a really important question for you. If you, Richard, were to ask your thrall to find you a derelict building near a, a graveyard, mm-hmm. um, what would you prefer to sort of like lurk and slurp uh, grief from? Oh, like um, a really nice abandoned brownstone near um, Greenwood oh. Cemetery in Brooklyn. <laughs> you love to see it. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, for me, would I would probably want to like uh, maybe like a, an abandoned 
pub near like i was just i was just wondering a lot of uh, around a lot of scottish graveyard oh yeah uh, sure over, over the holidays so like maybe something scottish with like a like a yeah uh, an abandoned pub nearby oh there's a beautiful um, protestant cemetery in rome um with all that's full of feral cats that i've been to maybe there's like a nice villa near there that would be good oh Love a cat infested graveyard. Yeah. Love that for you. Um, all right. So, uh, th- this is what our, our grief eaters do. He, he's visiting people in the dead of night and hanging around and sucking up some, some grief. Um, let us talk about Jeannie in this episode. Uh, so good. This is, yeah, this is so good. This is, um, you know, we, we are both fans of Mary Winningham in general. Uh, um, but this is, uh, the, the biggest genie episode so far. And we, she gets this visitation, um, in the night. And then, you know, she wakes up and can't really, oh, well, no, first thing happens is she's at work and she sees this hooded figure. <laughs> I really, I really love how genie handles this. I mean, she's, she's freaked out. It's freaky. Uh, it's freaky all the way up until that guy's head lulls back and it's not like some grief monster. But I really love that she's like, um, reminder. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you have a hood, uh, this is definitely not a rule I'm just making up right now. You need to have it down. Uh, just, just saying. Um, anyway, so she sees that figure at work and she goes home and she's like, she's drained. It almost feels like supernaturally drained, but she's drained. And then we get this flashback. You know, Ralph goes to like wake her because he's ordered food, but then we get this flashback, uh, to them immediately post, um, the death of their son. And this is incredible work from both of them. Like, yeah. what, what did you, what did you make of this? Well, I think also here? going back to, um, the scene in her, in her office where yeah. she's counseling this young mother who's trying to get, you know, back on the up and up and, and, and raise her, you know, be good to her child. And, and we see Jeannie kind of giving this, you know, stern, but, but caring sort of, you know, attention to her, to her, to, to this case, you know, um, and, and you think about like, so this is a woman grieving a child who then has to deal with all these other people who are having problems with their being able to raise their still alive children and just like yeah. how hard that must be. And then she comes home and she's like, Oh, it, um, it was just a weird day. And there's just these two, lonely broken grown-ups in this quiet empty house being like i guess we'll just order dinner like just but the, but they're carrying on they're keeping on you know and i think that then flashing back to a point when they really it looked like they weren't going to be able to do that um yeah. where yeah. you see that the kind of bleak present tense is actually better than something than it had been even though it's not very good on its own you know it just gives you a sense of like the long process of grief Yes, I love that. I, I I hadn't thought about that. I really love that scene of watch. I love watching people do their jobs and be good at their jobs and things sometimes. And uh, you know, the the mother says she missed an appointment and she wasn't sure if the person got the message and she just goes like, "I'll check in. I'll I'll check in on that." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like a little sure. frustrated but also caring. Yeah. Like it's a, yeah. it was just a really well calibrated scene. It was beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, we exactly. We get we get this flashback to a time when they were both like just not coping and what that does then is that later um you know she goes to the kitchen she has this thing and then she just walks back bloody footed to bed which is a great the whole sequence is great like him discovering the bloody footprints and stuff like that but he's just sort of like that he's in a place at least where he can 
take care of her. Like, I'll go get some stuff for your feet and like help you with your feet. That sounds like a low bar to clear, but like, you know, he's not drinking. He can, he can be here for her and at least to some degree in this episode. And then later when he has a conversation and he's talking about like, remember the medication and the sleepwalking you were doing? Like, this is a bit, uh, it's frustrating a bit for us to watch this as an audience because we know that or we think we know that this happened to her, right? It spoke like, to her too, that, that we heard it yeah. speak out loud. Yeah. Like we saw this happen. So we, you know, we believe that wasn't a dream. She, she, she saw him. Like we know something spooky's going on. So Ralph's, um, inability to believe her should be more frustrating to me as an audience member. But there's something about the way that Ben Mendelssohn calibrates his performance where it could have been so condescending. You know what I mean? Like, baby, you're just sleepwalking again or whatever. But there's just something like really like he's like, you had a really scary dream and it wasn't like, oh, you had a scary dream. It's just like your fear, your emotions, your feeling are real and I validate you. I just cannot make the leap with you to the supernatural. Not right now. Not where, I, not in episode five. Maybe by episode 10, I'll get there, but not in episode five. Yeah. Um, and he says that just, really sad thing of like, I think you're just going looking for him. Yeah. You know, and, and I, yeah. but it's it said with such sensitivity and, and, and just kind of this weary thing. And I think that that it's such an interesting portrait. You know, I think about the movie, maybe because I'm at Sundance right now that where the, that movie premiered, but I think about Manchester by the Sea, which is a movie about grief, but not about the immediate part it's about like the long winter afterward you know Mm -hmm. of just like life is just there's just a hole in life forever you know um and i think that like little scenes like that just kind of showed like like we're look we're we're getting up we're going to work we're 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 carrying on there are little pleasures in life you know but like yeah like for the most part we are still consumed by this thing yeah it's 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 really interesting and it's interesting to me um i think what what makes it even the whole thing even spookier in a very like um not like um visual effects spooky but just sort of like psychologically spooky is when he wakes she he like comes to her she's got the bloody feet in the bed he like wakes her up she wakes up in a like a panic yeah. like upset and like terrified but she can't remember her dream right away or what happened to her. She can't remember it right away. And then she's just like, I think you should drop the case. Something bad's going to happen. And then he has that great line where he's like, something bad has already happened. Mm -hmm. Right. But like that, that she's terrified, but she can't remember why, but she has this message she needs to deliver to him. And then that she then remembers what happened. That is spooky. That sort of like erase from her mind, but then like comes back sort of aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then she draws what she, what she remembers seeing this sort of half droop, half droop face hoodie guy. Uh, and for, (laughs) I paused and I like, no offense to Jeannie's drawing skills, but I just think it's, um, a little bit of a leap that, um, that Ralph looked at that and was like, you know, we should look into, uh, Claude. Because that did not look like Patty Considine to me in any way whatsoever. But it felt like he looked like that and was like, hey, let's let's check for his fingerprints based on this drawing my wife made. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I was like, that's uh, – Jeannie, don't quit your day job and become a sketch artist. That's all I have to say about that. Um, I guess the last thing – the last kindness that Jeannie does in this episode is she like – when she she insists that Glory be there when they go to the to Terry's grave – and then she sort of hides the defiled 
yeah. um, temporary gravestone from her. And I thought that was, you know, a nice little, a little touch. And, and once again, sort of reinforcing, uh, their bond. Um, <clears throat> we, as we mentioned, um, the character of Eunice Sablo is at, uh, the gravesite and they have this car ride on the way there where he talks about this dream with the pails of milk and like, what do, you know, what do dreams represent? What, what is reality? What is supernatural? Um, do you like this interlude? Like, how do you feel about this dream? Yeah, I think it's another bit of kind of like nice sort of just atmosphere and, and texture, you know? Um, and I think that like, you know, we'll talk about, uh, you know, sort of Holly's thing in yeah. this episode, but like, mm-hmm. I think that we're seeing this show, like people <sighs> revealing various superstitions that they have, that we all have, you know? And that maybe we don't say out loud that often, or some of us do, you know, I think it can take the form of religion. It can take the form of mysticism of, you know, astrology or whatever. Like we all sort of live by some of those codes to help explain the world, you know, and explain being alive. And so here we have this guy telling his kind of like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a very pragmatic cop, but I also think that my, you know, great grandmother had a, a, a vision about one of her sons dying in the war. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I like, I like various people sort of relating their various degrees of skepticism or, or belief yeah. and, and what that all means to them. Okay. I think that does bring us to Holly. I think that's where we are. And let's just follow, follow Holly's journey in this episode. Um, <clears throat> so Holly, uh, I think you mentioned last week that, um, uh, one thing that Holly is good at in her, uh, investigation is like, considering other people's input and hypothesis and sort of synthesizing mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So I really like this scene that she has with this bartender who we've already met uh, before uh, where she asks, she poses her hypotheticals like say you're a grief monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is an awfully game bartender. I feel like most bartenders would be like, I'm sorry, you're, you're cut off. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and you're, well, I, I like, uh, I like Andy. I think Andy's very cute, blah, blah, blah. But like, also, I feel like, I feel a little thing between. Oh, yeah. Uh, Holly and this bartender, too. Um, I, you know, I think there's a reason why this bartender's like, oh, I'll drive you around town. Sure, sure. Oh, um, yeah. Let, let me take you to the cemetery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, a tour of all our cemeteries? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, oh, you want to go see, uh, you want to go to this house that says child killer on the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Um, anyway, so they, they have this hypothetical sort of conversation. What would you do? Where would you go? Um, how 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 would you slurp that grief um and yeah the bartender has this line where she's where she says something like do you know the city the bartender goes does tarzan know the jungle (laughs) i don't know there's something i really liked about that uh but yeah but holly's just sort of like putting her case together it's interesting you know she's checking in with ralph it's interesting that ralph uh Ralph gives like a recap of what she's up to, to the other Hardy boys, but like they're, they're, uh, skeptical. And I like that at least Ralph vocalized my frustration watching at home. Cause I'm like, you guys are the one who suggested her in the first place. Like what, why did you hire her? If everyone's just going to doubt her, uh, the whole time. So I like that Ralph was like, let's just, you know, let her do her yeah. thing. Um, and then I think, you know, Holly goes to the graveyard. She meets uh good old Boyle Neck. She goes to his house. What, Richard? What happens in the closet at his house? What did you see? I couldn't really tell. 
Some, yeah. Something moves as if like there was a breeze or so, some, suddenly, right? Right. Like right. I, it made me think maybe the thing was, or some version of the thing was standing behind her looking at her and then moved. It, yeah. It creeped me out. I watched it several times trying to figure out. To me, it was almost like gesturing towards the bed. Cause then she turns around and she sees the freshly made bed, which we have already seen sort of stripped of bed clothes. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was sort of like the clothing was gesturing the bed and all of that is very upsetting to think about. But, um, yeah, that's, I, I had some questions. If you guys have other ideas about that closet and what happened there, please do let us know. Um, is the grief monster gay? Was that what they were saying? It's like out of the oh, closet. Oh, coming yeah, out yeah, of the yeah, closet. Yeah, mm-hmm. And maybe it's like, Hey girl, embrace your your bi-ness and also date the bartender. <laughs> yeah, she's like she's clearly up for anything. Yeah, it's like listen, Andy's great. We like Andy a lot. Protect Andy at all costs. But like that bartender though, also mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Um, speaking of Andy, smooth move from Andy. Uh, she's in her hotel room, uh, watching a movie, uh, some some old fashioned movie. It sounds like. Um, and uh, Andy's like, hey. I'm at the bar downstairs, (laughs) gonna get a drink. Wanna join me? Uh, no pressure. And then she's just like, oh, uh, why'd you come to my room though? And he's (laughs) like, yes. Uh, um, yeah. So they go up and they talk about the case and then there's just a great, um, moment in learning moment for men around the world about consent. She's like, oh, I know I invited you up here. But no, no, thank you. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, no problem, but I should go. And then she's like, no, stay, let's lie down. Like that whole, I was just like, Andy, I like you so much. Uh, what, what, what was your, was your read on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it, there needs to be, there, there needs to be a few moments of lightness and goodness in, in this show or else it would be yeah. like too oppressive. So I, I like the kind of cuteness of, of, of them. Um, and also like it, it, it allows for a moment of, Holly to think out loud and thus for us to kind of think out loud or think about what's what we've seen and what's happening and putting things together, you know? Um, and I think he's like, he's a good character in that he is like interesting in his own right, but also like just a good sounding board because he has experience. He knows the kind of lingo and the, the sort of thought processes that, um, investigators have. Um, so yeah, I too, now that you mentioned it, I'm worried about Andy. <laughs> Like if you, if, you know, to the, to listener emailed in and said the thing about the therapist, if the, if the therapist is a device to help us crack inside Ralph's head, you're right that Andy, and we talked about this last week, like Andy is so dumped so much exposition in last week's episode about like the backstory of Heath and the, and the case there and stuff like that. Um, and I said last week, I was like, the reason I wasn't, I didn't mind is I was like, kind of emotionally invested in their little date that they went on. And the same thing is true here where like, I, you know, they're once again, she's sounding out her logic of like, okay, if, you know, if the bed is made, if like, if the bed is made, if this is happening, if, if, if there's someone there who like cares for these individuals, like that means this, that means this thing. And he's helping her understand that. And that's, and we're privy to that. But then also we're like, Okay, but then, okay, now what? What's happening now? Um, yeah, and I really, I love this whole thing where she's like, can we, and, and I also think this idea of her like rejecting him, but then saying, okay, can we take it at this speed, at my speed, gives Holly control of the situation in a way that I think we would want to see for a character who has these sort of social interaction difficulties. Like we want to see her completely like, in control of and deriving the situation um, to her comfort level. Yeah. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was really important to depict. And then we just get this like lovely, like these lovely the next morning thing where she has folded his clothes into like a little pile. She gives him this like little kiss. That's not like a, like, you know, kisses her fingers and then touches her fingers to him. And then she's written this lovely note, um, which says like, I'll always remember you. So don't forget about me. I'm going to steal that and write it to someone. It's such, like a sweet thing. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then Andy finds her paper, which um, kind of seems to show like the life cycle yeah. of this creature. Like it kills 20 days later. It appears as someone, you know, so like, what is, what is the cycle uh, that we're following here? Um, and I think it's, he's realizing that like it's their time is up almost. Right. That like, yes. cause, yeah, I think, right. I think it's been, it's been three or so weeks since the whole Terry situation. So, uh oh, is it, you know, is something new going to happen? Right. Exactly. Right. Um, and so Holly's stuck in traffic. Uh, he, this guy with a boil on his neck can't handle the rash anymore, can't handle everything that he's done. And he basically engineers it so the cops will kill him. Like takes an empty gun, takes a guy hostage. It's interesting. I wonder if these characters, if these thrall characters like can't kill themselves like physically or something like that. Yeah, you know maybe I mean? mm-hmm. he has to like mm-hmm. engineer his death. Yeah. Um, and then we get this visitation. The, the episode ends with this visitation from Derek or this dream or whatever it is. And, uh, it's, I think it's incredibly effective. Uh, not the least of which, because Ben Mendelsohn is, uh, very good at his job, <laughs> the job of acting. Um, but you know, you see the feet first. Um, you know, and it's just taken really slow and a lot of it is just on Ben Mendelssohn's face. And, uh, you know, I think what does Derek say? Like, you need to stop looking for me, right? Yeah. Let me go. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's devastating. And once again, like as, as our listener told us, this is not, something out of the book. This is something that the show is doing with Ralph's grief and um, his thoughts of his son. And it's enormously effective as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Agreed. What a good show. Um, yeah. So all signs point to like, stop investigating me. <laughs> Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I just want to drink my grief in peace. Uh, do we have any, any questions or, or things we are, looking forward to or worried about other than poor Andy. Andy, be safe. I just, I just want to know what the stuff in the woods is for. That's, that's my big question mark right now. I just want, I need to know what that's all about. Do you think it's like, I mean, it's not to decorate the barn. Does he eat the lamp? Like, is he going to eat the lamp? He's eating the deer. I'm assuming. Is he going to eat the, like uh, the home goods? Like he says, doesn't he say like, does plastic doesn't taste good or something? Doesn't he say something to that effect? But like, again, all the other stuff is in one pile, but then that's just kind of cast off as if there, there needs, there's some sort of order behind this pile of things. You know, I don't know. It's, it's very confusing. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we just need to know what the stuff in the woods is about. Mm-hmm. Holly's on her way back to, to, uh, Georgia or her way to Georgia to make her case to meet Ralph for the first time. Um, and, oh no, no, they've already met, uh, to, to make her case in front of everyone. And, uh, I do like that thing she says in the episode when he's like, 
earlier when she asks him to go look for structures around a graveyard and he goes, why? And she's like, I'd be embarrassed if I was wrong. So I don't want to tell you. And then she also says, uh, you know, I, I just, I like her, her own skepticism. She's op- way more open to all of this than Ralph, but she's also like, I, this is, I'm nervous about this presentation because I know this is going to be a hard sell, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's where she is right now. So, all right. Well, yes, that's, I'm looking forward to more stuff like this, like the opportunity to be inside Jeannie's mind. And I think this, th- this I know does happen in the book that Jeannie sees, uh, this figure in, in her dining room. And I think it's, it's important narratively because it gives, a person so close to Ralph. Um, if we're talking about a, a skeptic versus an, uh, a believer dynamic in the story, it gives someone very close to Ralph that he can't fully ignore. Right. Who's on the side of, no, there's a literal hooded droopy face guy walking around and giving me warnings. Um, I'd be curious to know, maybe I can email HBO and, and see if they'll tell me, but, um, I'll be curious to know who's doing the voice of the hooded figure oh, yeah. or, or if they like blended like a little, a little bit of Bateman, a little bit of Considine. Like what are we, what are we getting here? What's the spooky melange, uh, behind this, uh, this guy? But that, that, that could be fun if they did something like that. Like, you know, cause he's still, he's still shaking off a bit of Terry and transforming into Claude. So like how much of that voice is one or the other, you know, would be interesting to know. All right. Well, well, that's it. We did it. Yeah. Yay. Mary Whittingham. What a, what a, what a great actress. Really? Uh, what, what would you suggest uh, if people want to see more of Mary Whittingham's like work, what would you people, what would you suggest people check out? Oh, you got to watch her Oscar nominated turn in Georgia with Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, where you get to hear her beautiful singing voice. It's a great, great film. Um, I'm also a huge fan of St. Elmo's Fire, which mm-hmm. is like, I think maybe her first film. Uh, she's just a, a great actress who I don't think has been given, uh, as much work as she deserves in Hollywood. So I love this vehicle for her. Uh, you can see her maybe on Broadway in Man from the North Country because she was in it off Broadway, which ooh. is a, with Bob Dylan music, uh, musical. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she's quite good in it. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Uh, all right, Richard, until next week. Where can people find you? Um, I'll be in my empty flat overlooking Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. <laughs> and I'll be tweeting uh, from Rylaws and writing for VF.com. Where will you be? Oh, excellent. Um, well, I will be giving Jeannie drawing lessons so that she can oh. better approximate uh, the spooky figures in her kitchen. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. I just wrote this. You can find both of us on the podcast, little gold men. Uh, it's Oscars so soon. And we will be sort of all together on that. Uh, but yeah, then we'll be back with you guys talking about, I mean, we'll find time somehow next, next Sunday is also Oscar Sunday. We'll find some time, uh, to talk about, uh, episode six of the outsider.
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 